Recruitment. At its core, it's about matching people with organizations. But with all the twists and turns, you might mistake talent acquisition for a thriller novel. Adrian Russo, innovator and co-founder of Recruit Locator, is bringing you a fresh podcast with style. This is Recruiting is a Cluster. From the preposterous to the practical, you'll hear stories from the field to help you stay on trend as we reshape recruitment for a brave new era and hopefully crack a smile while we're at it. Buckle up, it could be a wild ride. Here's Adrian. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining me on the first episode of the Recruiting as a Cluster podcast. There are so many business podcasts out there and they all seem the same. I promise you a much, much different experience. What you're gonna hear are real stories. Real stories about the interviewing and hiring process, from the executives and recruiting leaders themselves. My name is Adrian Russo. Once again, I am the host for the show. My background's a little bit different. I have 15 years of recruiting experience and five years of tech experience. I'm the co-founder of Recruit Locator, and I also appeared in the Amazon Prime series, Top Recruiter, and was featured in the Art of Recruiting docufilm. Our first guest is a former executive at the Apache Software Foundation, the organization behind the number one web server on the planet. Their products are used by nearly half of all pages on the World Wide Web. Their database technology, Cassandra, is used by all the major tech players, including Facebook, Instagram, Netflix, Apple, and Amazon. In fact, Facebook has the largest Cassandra instance of any other company in the world. He has architected solutions that virtually all of our listeners have used. If you have a Capital One credit card in your wallet and you use their mobile app, if you ever used a ride-charged app, if you ever purchased tickets online, if you've done any of these things, you have used a solution that he architected and that was built by a team that he hired. You really wanna hear his stories and learn how he has built world-class teams that have done innovative things in technology. He is a current member of CDK.dev, which is a content hub for AWS Cloud Development Kit, and he is a mentor at FreeBSD. I am pleased to welcome our first guest, my friend, Philip Gallucci. Philip, how are you today? I'm good, Adrian. What have you been up to these days? Well, I mean, uh, probably the same thing as everyone else. I've been hiding out in my house. Uh, been working remote for the last better part of six months. What about you? Oh, it's almost like we're twins. <laughs> it's almost like we're doing the same thing as the rest of the world right now, right? <laughs> sure are. So how, how have you been keeping busy with like everything going on? I mean, it seems like the world's standing still right now with everything going on. Personally, um, I, I like to volunteer and save, save animals. So we actually do, my, that is my girlfriend and I do a lot. Uh, we volunteer with Lucky Dog Animal Rescue for over the last five years now. Okay. Um, we're one of the larger organizations on the Eastern Seaboard and definitely the DC area. We're turning 11 this year. Wow, congratulations. Saved, saved over 18,000 uh, dogs and cats since founding. Personally, the way that we like to contribute is by fostering. Okay, so so when there's a pet that needs a home temporarily, you welcome them and they stay in your house? Yeah, we take them in, no questions asked, really. Keep them until they find a loving uh, forever home and get adopted. 
So how long do these these dogs, and I'm assuming it's all, is it all dogs or is it cats sometimes? Lucky Dog does cats and dogs. Okay. Uh, we actually only do dogs because some of our dogs like cats a little bit too much. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so how long do they typically stay though? It, it can depend. It can be anywhere from a day to a weekend to um, six months is actually on the longer side. Okay. But usually a, a few weeks, like two, three, four weeks. Uh, we, we just had one during COVID, actually, that got adopted uh, for five months, which wow. is actually our longest foster ever, uh, which is surprising in COVID because everyone wants a dog while they're home alone. I'm sure. <laughs> well, I'm, I'll bet there's a lot more there to unpack, but um, we want get, to get into that a little bit later. But uh, tell me a little bit more about some of the tech stuff you're into. I'm sure a lot of our listeners would like to hear about that. Well, I'm pretty, pretty big into cloud these days. Okay. And to design a solution, you really have to go end to end. So there's a bunch of technology you could use that would help you with this. One of these in particular is Amazon's Cloud Development Kit, the AWS CDK. It has a, what they call content hub. There's a lot of news and media and information and tech to know about it. And it's scattered across 15 million sites and types of communication like Slack or Discord or other things. And it's really hard to keep up with. Okay. It's also new, so it moves really fast, as does all technology these days. So we're putting together this group of um, AWS community heroes, and somehow myself came together. Uh, really, I, I started helping right after they launched, providing uh, quick feedback and testing of some things and really advertising their first conference, which is coming up on September 30th. And what they're doing is they're building a community, what we're doing, I should say, so we're building a community and a website that's going to function as a real-time content hub for all of the stuff about CDK so that developers and for that matter, anybody have a one-stop place to go for it. So that's interesting. Um, so what's your role in that and, and how do you contribute to that community? I try to attract people to it for one because okay. uh, all new communities need new people. As you in introduced me from the Apache Software Foundation, one of the things I like to live by is community over code. It's always about the people. You could have the best code base on earth, the best product on earth, but if no one knows about it or you can't explain its value to somebody, it doesn't matter. And if you can't attract developers to it, it's going to rot. You know, and that's interesting. You bring up an interesting point because there are some organizations out there that just do not want to adopt an open source approach. And why do you think that is? Uh, it's the reason people do a lot of things. It's fear of change. What, what's different is different and people don't like change. The, the thing with technology though is if you do the same thing two days in a row, why are you in technology? Technology exists so that you don't have to do the same thing twice. So that brings us to a challenge that we see all the time, especially in the hiring process. You know, with all of this change going on, what are some of the challenges that you've seen in interviewing candidates? There's um, a lot to unpack there, Adrian. Um, I've, I've done a, a bunch of interviews in my time, several hundred at this point, in fact, and there's about a million ways they could go wrong and only a few ways they could go right. But I do have a, uh, a really funny story about one. So when you, when you work at a medium to a larger size company, you don't always talk to all the people all the time. So things can fall through the cracks. And okay. normally as, as a, as a senior leader, you're not involved in, say, day-to-day -day hiring or um, an agile sprint team hire, or a regular coder or infrastructure builder. You're more hiring uh, the more mid-tier mid executives. So it's, it's rare to have um, one of your groups reach out and say, hey, 
we can't decide. Can you help us decide on a candidate? It's really weird to see someone escalate that up to a senior leader rather than just make a decision. So it sounds like what happens is you have this group, they were hiring for a position. What was the position they were hiring for? So in this particular case, this is a, uh, a data engineer, which basically means they need to know a programming language. They need to know a cloud and how to make the programming language have the cloud do the things that people need. Okay. And it sounds like, so this group, they interviewed the candidate first, they did the first round interview, they weren't sold, and this external group came to you as the expert and they said, you know what, can you interview this candidate for us, do a technical interview and let us know your thoughts. Is that basically what happened? Basically, there was, there was actually about three rounds before this got to me, not even counting um, the recruiter touch point and then initial phone screen. So I guess it was the fifth round at this point which is a whole other debacle in and of itself. Sure. So why are there five? Why, do we <laughs> why need are five there different? five rounds and then I'm going to be a sixth and then final round? And I'm not actually connected to this day-to-day -day work. Like I know what data engineering is and I know how to fill this position. But at the end of the day, they're, they're set out to achieve a goal that I don't get daily updates on. I get monthly updates on from status updates. So basically decision paralysis in yeah. the previous five interviews led to you being the final decision maker in this yep. interview process. Yep. People like to say that technology moves fast. Well, I don't even know what that means anymore, right? Everyone feels compelled to make an offer on most of the candidates that, that come through and, and get moving with work, right? Or make a quick decision, like interview a bunch of people or not. So after interviewing a bunch of people, now you're on the fence. What do you do? Do you say, ah, screw it? We're just gonna take a whole nother batch of candidates or do you do something different and take a risk? Unfortunately, they were unwilling to take a risk and reached out for help, which I was happy to help. And they set up the interview. This is a mid-tier position, right? Three, four years into your career. So you're not an intern, but you're also not a wizard, which in my opinion is actually the hardest level to interview for because you don't know what it's okay for them to not know. It's true. It's pretty hard, right? So. All the dots crossed, like there was no deep technical stuff here because it's a mid-tier interview. Everything checked out. I was like, yeah, go ahead and make an offer. We can always try and train them after the fact if they need some additional skills, which let's be real, it's 2020. Everybody needs additional skills. Sure, everything's evolving. Yep. Or we, we always have the probationary period. Sure. Um, this is a big company, remember? So this is part of the course. You do many interviews uh, and you get, a, you get a good bit of turnover. So I was really surprised for the reach out, but it happened and it turned out that based on my recommendation, they extended the offer. So it sounds like good news. It sounds like good news. Aside from the fact that the candidate went through six interviews <laughs> and the hiring manager couldn't make their own decision, so they reached out to you. Aside from that, it sounds like good news. So where's the problem? Well, the candidate hadn't actually started yet. Okay. So day one, uh, you come in, you get your, your orientation, you know, really see people depending on the company you're at. This could even go a week, it could go six weeks at Facebook. Imagine if this happened at Facebook. Uh, so this is day two technically for this employee and they've gone through orientation, which means we've already spent eight hours on this person. We've given them a laptop, we've given them a, a password, we've given them security clearance, we've given them a desk. They've gotten some keys that they right? can do. Yeah, and they they get set, sat down and they, they start talking with their team, this is an Agile team, so like they have ceremonies, they have um, version control, they have an issue tracker, these are things that are part of the course. It's not like they don't know how to do a programming thing. It's literally like they've never seen version control before or an issue tracker before or 
the cloud before, like an Amazon web console. They've literally like never seen it before. The person you interviewed? No. Turns out that it wasn't. The person that showed up was not the person that was interviewed. Correct. So you're saying that for the technical interview, the person that was going through the hiring process brought in a ringer. They did. Somehow. I got to ask you this before you go any further. Was the ringer any good? Was it even a good ringer? Good enough, right? Like, they, they knew to make some spelling mistakes. <laughs> at, at, at this point, I have to believe that, right? Because how else, why would you hire a mid-tier ringer, right? If you're going to get a ringer, you're going to get someone that's good. <laughs> at least get a good ringer, right? right? I mean, if you're going to send someone in to do a technical interview for you. You certainly don't I mean, want them to accidentally flub it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least they passed. It sounds like, by the way, it sounds like they even hired a bad ringer. The ringer, it sounds like, almost did not pass your interview. He was average. Um, or he or she, I should say, were average. I they mean, got an average yeah. ringer. Yeah. Okay. So this person shows up on day one. Ringer's not there anymore. So what happens? So nobody knows what to do because, first of all, you just asked, like, your boss's boss for help. And they helped you. And they gave you a recommendation that you asked for. And now you want to be like, are you crazy? And this person can't do anything. Or, like, this person is like just seeing tech right like maybe like what an intern would be like like you, that's a really hard sell to go back to your boss on the first day and say like the first day uh somehow it made it up to me of course it's going to make it up to someone you had a you had a candidate posing as a fake candidate in the process and they got well, no one knew this yet right like it, it made it up to me so i was like oh, i was like all right i'll go i'll go speak with this person and, and see what's up and like what you're asking them to do that's so so strange uh, and I come downstairs and I'm like, where's the person? And they're like, right there. I'm like, what do you mean right there? I've never seen this person before in my life. So you, you had never seen this person. No one had seen this person. And it's a completely different person than it's you interviewed. It's a completely different person. And they're like, well, it's the person we talked to. I'm like, well, that's great. It's not the person I screened. <laughs> which which raises some other questions about like how someone got through five rounds of interviews before getting to me. That how did this person get through five rounds of technical screens? Let's let's actually talk about how this person got through five rounds, right? Like, what, how does what that is, happen? What is being asked at an interview that someone can do okay at, but then really have no fundamental technical knowledge? In in two. If, if tech is really about moving really quickly and delivering solutions that deliver value, it's more about your approach of how you solve a problem and how you fit with the team than it is about what you know today. Because you have to learn something no matter what job you take, but especially in tech. In my mind, I don't know how someone like this got past a recruiter. How do we fix this? How, do, how does a recruiter, knowing that recruiters by and large are not technical, what are some of the things we get introduced early on in the process to stop this from happening? Well, I actually like to think it's never the recruiter's fault. It's always the hiring manager's fault. You can always be more At the end clear of the day. in what you're looking for. You can always help the recruiter more with feedback. You can never give a recruiter too much feedback. Maybe tell the recruiter the exact questions that you're looking for and what good answers look like, not just the questions. Or explain why they need to know something. Actually make them understand it versus just saying, here's a job. Here's a wreck. The, the real question comes up like, if you're going to ask a technical question in an interview, what's the goal of the candidate getting it right, right? Are they going to even need that question for their job? Or is it just some boilerplate question you think you should ask in an interview? Or is it a question that they've literally had every single company they've ever talked to ask them and they've just memorized the answer? Right? I mean, like, why are you, what's the goal of them getting it right or them getting it wrong, right? Is it actually ruling them out of the position? My, my answer is... If you're asking someone to sit down and write code for you, 
you're probably not because most people don't code on the spot. It's not an on the spot task. It takes thought, it takes time, it takes iterations. Some people it even takes trial and error as you're learning new things about whatever you're doing. I don't think it's a great use of time. What's more valuable to me is asking a candidate about how they spend their time. How do they learn their craft? Why do they think what they know is the right answer? And what, what you would hope a candidate would say here is I'm involved in such and such open source communities, or I am a committer, which means I can change the source code to this project over here, or I present at these conferences because I do things. But even beyond that, I mean, to even know that type of information, information, we have to get basic information up front as recruiters. We have to be able to get you as the hiring manager information like what their GitHub is, you know, whether they're making contributions to Stack Overflow, the basics to cover, you know, just so you can review that. Not all recruiters will be, will be able to, you know, take a look at, you know, their contributions on Stack Overflow or their Git commits or take a look at a Git repo. And that's perfectly fine. There are plenty of recruiters out there that aren't able to do those things that are some of the best recruiters I've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. I've worked with a lot of recruiters who, who aren't technical, but they know all the things to do and they know to collect that stuff and they know how to work with hiring managers to get them what they need. And that's fine. But one of the easy things we can do as recruiters is collect social media information, collect the debt, all the, all the basic Git information, collect stack overflow information. And when we pass that along, pass it along with the phone screen, the hiring man, I've never met a hiring manager that won't review a Git repo if you pass it along to them. Very true. Let, let's talk about what, what the open source is though, right? It's not just about writing the code. Sure. Right? Um, as we said, you're gonna have to learn stuff no matter what you do, but a team, an agile sprint team is a community. An open source foundation or an open source project is also a community. You can have them talk about like their interactions in the community or like what they did to get to where they are in that community, which will show you how they'll actually work in a team. Like, cause that is quite literally how they are working in a team, except everyone can see it cause it's in the public. So that's a different approach actually. And that's actually a, a really good approach. You don't, you very rarely hear someone say, let's look at what they've already, what they already did in the open source community as opposed to what questions we're gonna ask them in the interview. It's a very different approach. Yeah, and I don't just mean code, right? Like how do they interact with the community, right? Are there mailing lists civil? Are they about the topic, right? Are they logical? Is Do they have good written communication skills, right? You don't have to guess, you can actually just go read it. Why do you think more people don't hire based on those factors? Unfortunately, as prolific as uh, open source is, it's still a minority in a lot of enterprise type cultures. And if they hired based on that, because they tend to like to hire from within, there's not going to be a lot of people that fit the bill. And again, change is hard. Going back to change is hard. It's still hard to hire someone that's like, I'm going to use open source. I'm going to work on open source. We're going to release open source, right? Like it's still actually a hard sell for most companies, believe it or not, in 2020. Aside from the company's approach and how they feel about open source, is it an effective strategy to engage your recruiting team or your talent acquisition team to go out and target these engineers and developers that are in the open source community? Absolutely. Uh, there's even developers that join open source specifically so they can get recruiters' attentions. Uh, in fact, when you mentioned online tickets, the whole way I actually got Ticketmaster's attention was from my contributions in the Apache Open Source Foundation. They, this recruiter literally was reading the mailing list, looking for candidates, found me, read a few of my posts, realized that I was moving up in the world in this community and 
said, hey, do you want to work at this company? And I said, absolutely. You know what? That's that's actually funny. The uh, the first the second service, the first service I built for Recruit Locator. Well, I shouldn't say I uh, myself and Joseph Andrew De La Pena, the other developer at Recruit Locator. The first service that we built was an open web search that basically searched for unindexed uh, pages, open uh, and misconfigured servers, basically things like seven seven seven. So like you know, someone unintentionally gave people read write and delete permissions essentially on their server, things like that. But aside from that, the second thing we built was a service for GitHub for the sole purpose of then being able to take a secondary service and search for specific programming languages within their, uh, within their repo for that purpose. I mean, you, it is true that you get, you get engineers and attention by that certainly, but you also get recruiters attentions that way. One thing that's interesting though is you don't always find in people's GitHubs the languages that they're good at. You might find the languages that they're bad at. It could be a private repo. It could be a private repo too, right? So the whole point is you have to ask the candidates. It's also about how they answer the question, right? If they're like, oh, I don't know, or why would I know that? That's a sign. If they only know like one thing, they're telling you what you think you want to hear. But if they won't shut up about it, they're passionate about it, which... That's why they're going to learn. That's why they're going to continue with That's why they're going to be the top in the field. That's why they're going to know the right answer because they sit up at night learning it for fun. I don't care what the job is. If you describe a person to me as that, I want to hire them for that job. If what they're passionate about and think about and act like is that. Tech or not tech. Sure, you want them to be yeah. passionate about whatever it is they do. And obviously, any open source contributions, you're going to see that, one, they're doing this on their own time. And then also, it's going to give you a really good indication of the level of engagement they're going to have in a community, how they work within a team, and also what their quality of code is going to be, because you can see all of that. Yeah, and check it out. It's it's COVID. Open source is generally virtual. So all these open source communities are around the world you generally are now familiar with how to work in a virtual workforce, whereas other people are just seeing it for the first time. Do you think that affects hiring now? It should, right? For the at least next six months, and then things aren't going to go back to the way they are. There's going to be a different distribution of workforce, so virtual is going to be part of it. It's not going to be all of it. It's going to be part of it. Sure. So yeah, it's absolutely there, right? Like The way that you function virtually is different than the way you would function on site. Like the way you interact with people is fundamentally different. That's one thing I never really understood. And that's usually a big point of contention between talent and tech is the whole remote thing. You know, I've, I've always found that funny, especially in tech. I mean, this the whole point of technology is to be able to do things over the web and to be able to do things that aren't right in front of you physically. We're basically saying that, well, we're setting up our customers to do things remote, but no, 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 we can't do anything remote. And now we're all exposed to COVID. We're suddenly thrust into remote. We have all kinds of data that suggests that people are working longer, working harder. There's more work being done. So how do we go back to working full-time on site? And what's the argument at that point? I don't really think there is one, right? Like the ability to manage your schedule yourself is huge for any individual. And if, if you're coming from an open source background, you're going to look at you like, yeah, we've been doing this for two decades. Okay, what's new? It's Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's, it's Tuesday. I'm, right. I'm at home. I'm programming. Like most of the software any given person uses on any given day, on any given piece of electronics, was actually probably built by open source by a distributed team. Like there's a at least eight in ten chance. Else, for, the, for the last twenty years. I mean, outside of certain constraints, 
if you work in the the public sector, I mean, there's obviously certain constraints. But in this day and age, why you're hiring based on location, I mean, you're just putting yourself at a disadvantage. There is no reason why you should be considering candidates or you should solely be considering candidates that are just in your local area. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, people that live in the same country, we should be expanding our searches, particularly for those technical professionals. People give a lot of lip service to, you know, we want the best talent, we want this, we, we want that. But I'm sorry, does the best talent always live in a 50-mile radius, radius of your office? I don't think so. We have listeners that in the, are in the D.C. area. I'm sure they have great talent. We have we have phenomenal talent here in just about every area of tech, right? So we're we're a rarity. We we can find really premier tech talent here. If you go to somewhere in the Midwest, it might be a different market. There's great tech talent out there as well, but it's not a secret that it's not as densely populated with tech talent as DC. It, it's just not. It's a fact. If you're a company in the Midwest, why would you only consider local talent? I wouldn't. I really wouldn't. I still don't know that most companies think that way. Like I've, I've seen seen people in an interview ask, where do you live? And how are you going to make an hour commute each day? Why is that happening in an interview? Which like, why do you want everyone to work the same hours anyway? Like if the hours became flexible, you automatically get probably three different shifts and you cover 24 seven. Sure. Right. You don't have to do anything. Some people will be night owls. Some people will be morning people, and some people will keep the same same schedule. Right. Like, and again, this is a virtual team. The only difference now you're talking about time. And how does that change responsiveness when there's issues? It doesn't really, because there shouldn't be one person per time zone that can do thing A. There should be more than one person. If you have a if you have a distributed team, you can make the same argument about offshoring talent today before COVID. Right. Like, if it's off their time zone, what do you do? Well, you could also have, you could also stagger it so you have more coverage too. Yep. So you can spread across time zones to get more coverage, which I actually helped do at the Apache Software Foundation. We covered um, three different time zones to do twenty four coverage with just three individuals for a worldwide infrastructure. Right. It's actually not that hard to do. So well, how'd you, why how do you do that? It's targeted hiring. Actually, you say, "Hey, uh, I actually want to hire people in three different areas, even though you don't have offices in those areas." And that's the beauty of remote. And now you get the benefit of that time zone. And they, if they're an open source person, they might build a community where they are about something related to what you hired them for, right? So now you've got a presence. That's you the point. Free, right? that's, that's the whole and, point. And if you want to build a presence where they happen to be, because you didn't pick this area by, by accident, they can help because they're already there. That's why you want to build an open source community. That's why you want people in different areas. And that's why you want a distributor network. Like right now, I could probably go to almost any continent on earth. I wouldn't say unannounced, but I could probably find someone on almost any continent on earth in most countries where I could show up and I would know them. Maybe not great, but I would know them as a result of my open source relationships. Number one thing I want to do is if I'm trying to figure out fundamentals, I want to ask you a question that I have a good chance of knowing. You use it every day. You use it five days a week, seven days a week. You use it 10 times a day, five days a week. So this is something they're using right. on an everyday basis. Like multiple times every day. And if, they, if, they, and if they're not, they're not the right person. Right, yeah. So it, it might be how do you connect from computer A to computer B. The most common method is SSH, secure shell. There are many, many people out there. In fact, the vast majority of the population cannot do this. How do you write a, a cloud app where it doesn't run on your laptop? It doesn't even run in a data center you can touch if you can't connect to a remote computer. 
So I rather than asking someone like, okay, go code a Fibonacci series, right? They're never going to code a Fibonacci series in their job. Right. They're just not. I don't care if they can do it in 30 languages, they're not. Right. You know what they're going to do on their first day on their job? SSH somewhere. The most common task you do, if the very first thing you do as an engineer or developer, is, or, right? developer like, or DBA, or right? DBA, anyone, if the very first thing you do, it's literally the first thing you have to do in order to do your job is SSH into a computer, into another machine, and you don't know how to SSH, you probably don't do it. Yeah. The, the other thing I really look for in fundamentals, right, is I'm not going to go run the production website, right? There's no humans there, at least we hope there's not. It means it has to be automated. If you can only tell me how to do something by clicking on a web page or a GUI, that doesn't mean you know how to do it, right? It might make it faster if you're going to do the same thing a lot, but you should still understand what's happening underneath of it, right? So just because you can get a version control repository from, say, GitHub from the web page, you should also know how to do that with a programming language. Because if you're going to be any type of technology web developer or DBA or anybody that needs access to source code, you're going to have to get a copy of that source code. You're also going to have to run tests on it. How does what you just said tie into how we should evaluate candidates or how we should look at them early on in the process or look at them throughout the process? I'm, I'm more about pitching um, scenarios early and often, right? Like, I don't care what you can regurgitate. And most of the time, I don't care if you can format a resume the best. Uh, it's good if you can, but if you have a few mistakes, everyone makes a mistake now and then. I got to be honest. I don't care about resumes at all. I want to see what you've done. I want to look at your Git repos. I want to see what you've done online. I want to see what you've committed. That's what I want to see. Right. So what I really want to see is I want them to actually do something, not some cheesy write this code on a whiteboard thing. Like I want a real live fire scenario. Like yeah. they, they literally SSH, right? Because this will tell you if they can do it in the interview and then do something like they fix something or implement something that is relevant to your exact roadmap. Sure. You don't want them to do work for you, don't get me wrong, but like something that you know they will do within their first day on the job and probably every day on the job, right? Like have them do one of those things. Most people are actually not going to be able to do it. This speaks to a, a much more basic point that we can apply to every job, which is why do we ask candidates questions that they will never, ever do in their job? And I'm not talking about character questions. Yeah, it's actually worse the other way because you, if you go through all the motions and actually hire the person, that's way worse than, like, no matter what you do, you're going to miss a few people. But if you extend too many bad offers, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It really doesn't. And, and that's the whole way the story that we led with happened, right? Like the tech interviews asked things that they didn't need to know. The character slash culture ones asked questions that made them look good. And so they got through and then whatever they did know about tech wasn't relevant. Right? It's a, it was a perfect storm of comedy errors. Like literally everything that could go wrong went wrong. Yeah, I've, I've actually been on some interviews where I've talked to the candidate literally every round. So obviously a different company at this point. You always intro everybody when you start an interview, right? So you got to go around and you waste all this time. So I got to the point that, yeah, I still do the same thing I did last time. Yeah, That's what I, would I say. guess like, so. I do the same thing as I did last week and the week before that and the week before that and the week before that. Like I actually started to learn details about their personal life, which was interesting, but certainly not what you want to have happened in an interview, right? That can happen next. Well, what wait, do you do then? Let's, flip it, let's flip it around on the other side. That's what, you've also been a candidate, I'm sure. You've you've interviewed. I've had 
I have some great. So you've you've probably interviewed for some high level VP and C level positions in the past. I mean, they typically now that is going to entail three or four stages. So, but I'm not talking about those interviews. Forget your VP and your C level interviews. Put those aside. Tell us about a time when you had a a, a six stage interview. I'm sure you've had some, right? I've had quite a few actually. Tell us a little uh, bit about how did it feel as a candidate. It was it was a little crazy. Uh, one of the interviews I had was actually eight hours. An eight hour interview. It was literally from uh, I think it was eight thirty to four thirty. At the time, I thought it was perfectly normal. <laughs> it didn't even jump out to the. In what world is that normal? Well, I, I was I was a lot younger and a lot more naive at the time. All right. Uh, this this was back in my actual hands on days. So. A good bit ago. Uh, okay. This company is still in business today, so they might still do this. I don't know. <laughs> Can I pry the name out of you, or are you going to keep it to yourself? Uh, I'm going to keep it to myself, because okay. this is actually pretty absurd. <laughs> okay, I got to hear this story. <laughs> so, we are, we already talked about six rounds of interviews. What happens if it's all the same day? What happens if you had six rounds, except it's all the same day on the same visit? So, in, in, in my now wisdom... <laughs> <laughs> Um, when you realize that was dumb. <laughs> yeah, in my in my now wisdom, um, there's this thing where multiple people can interview someone at the same time. It, it really does exist. <laughs> that, that is a thing. <laughs> it sure. is a thing. So sometimes you'll hear like the recruiter or the hiring manager say, uh, you'll talk to um, the recruiter, you'll talk to, say, your boss, and then you'll meet the team. Okay. What do they mean one person or like who's going to be your mentor or who you're going to work with or like one person this company meant the entire team okay and how big was this team eight people it turns out so there were eight one-hour interviews back to back okay didn't even give me a lunch break (laughs) but that begs the question of one like i i legitimately got tired and like would start making mistakes towards the end i mean you put in a full day's work no kidding. And second, uh, this was actually not a local job. I actually flew out somewhere. Uh, so you're in jet lag. Rented an apartment, um, room, whatever. Got a rental car. And unfortunately, I also got sick. I actually had like a really bad flu. I, I had a 103 degree fever and still went because like, it's not like I'm really, I have to stay home and then fly back. I have to reschedule. I'm already out there. Right, so it actually got so bad that sometimes. Could you, by the way, could you imagine if that was during COVID? COVID? I would have been in my bed. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Can you so imagine if you did an interview from your bed? Oh my like, god! What if you well, were sick and like it's COVID? You're like, I'm just gonna do the interview from my bed. So <laughs> it got so bad that I couldn't hear out of one ear because it was stopped up. So I actually had to be oh like, god. can you stand on one side? And um, they were asking their questions like they didn't seem to notice. Right, they're like they didn't make any moves to cut it short. Uh, it got so bad at one point that someone was like, can you just basic old technical thing? I was like, yeah, absolutely. Get up, dutifully write it on the right board. Well, there's eight interviewers, so it's not like you erase the whiteboard. So other interviewers come in and they're like, that's not right. After the previous interview you were with, I was like, yep, good job. You got it right. Uh, which begs the question of like, there's an eight person team. There's got to be at least one person on this team that you know is bad at interviewing people, right? Like just because you're a good team player or a developer or a scrum master doesn't mean you can interview people. Right? There's no. going to be some subset of your team that's good at it and some subset that's not. So this this basically happens for eight back-to-back hours. Uh, and then they actually ended up making me an offer, which I took. I did actually work at this company. <laughs> wow, I hope you got uh, 
paid for that eight-hour marathon in your first check because that's absurd. <laughs> they were actually very good to me. Um, okay. Despite the interview process, a, a very good company. Okay. Uh, I actually hope they've improved the interview process because uh, you never know. Well, you know whoever this company is, they're right now if they're listening, they're sitting there saying, well, obviously we did this right. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> probably. So uh, another quick story from the same trip, actually. Because okay. uh, like, if you're going to go fly across the country, you might as well bundle a few interviews together. <laughs> because so, why not? So this was actually the previous day, so fortunately I wasn't sick yet. Okay. Um, so this is going back to like, why do you ask people questions that don't matter? They brought in their actual chief scientist, who um, they might as well have imported directly from uh, a chief scientist place, right? Like, he was, like, the uber chief scientist. He looked whatever like the is, stereotypical chief whatever scientist. Whatever it is you are picturing that a chief scientist looks like, that is this person. So, if you have a picture of a scientist in your head right now, that's probably what this guy looked like. White lab coat at all. I'm not kidding. Like, this is a tech company, not a hospital. Like, this is an office building. White lab coat at all. Chief scientist. So, they don't do DNA. They don't do biotech. Like, they build web software. That uh, is a guy that takes his job very seriously. I mean, just about any one of us could really go ahead and say that. But who's put on the lab coat? Have you put on a lab coat recently? I Where, have where's your lab coat? By the way... Philip's not wearing his lab coat, and I'm really disappointed. <laughs> I am not, no. I, I'm happy to say I do not own a lab coat. Neither do I. <laughs> People always talk about keep up with your programming languages, but they also say keep up with your algorithms. You should know ways of managing data, like what's efficient, what's not. Some companies, that's more important than the languages you know. This happened to be one of those companies, but you're never going to be on the job and need to invent an algorithm like maybe at Google Facebook you have to invent an algorithm most companies you're just going to be implementing things people already know about so this chief scientist comes he's the first interview and asks um, an algorithm question like maybe it's the traveling salesman or maybe it's how does the internet work like the shortest path these aren't really questions you're gonna deduce the answer to on the spot you either know it or you don't sitting there in front of a whiteboard for 15 minutes at a time isn't gonna make me come to the answer so he gave up after about two questions Next okay. interviewer comes in. They ask me two more but different algorithmic questions. I've, I've so far whiffed on all four. I've got none of them. I've not even come close in, to getting in them right. In fairness, you have a whiteboard to solve algorithm and, questions. So one of the questions that they later asked me was actually one of their business problems. And one of the questions they asked me was something that there is actually no answer to. and didn't tell me, right? Uh, there's literally no answer to one of the questions like mathematics across the world don't know what the answer is so if, so wait <laughs> if they hired you were they just gonna pay you an obscene amount of money because they found the guy so, that answered the question so what they asked me uh what ended up being 10 algorithmic questions i actually got literally not one of them right not what? one i got all 10 wrong they actually made me an offer they, they, they put, made me an offer which i actually turned down because it was blood money literally what do you mean by that? It was very clear this was a company that would have been in the valley or near there that they wanted you to work like a hundred hours a week. They wanted you to live at the company, right? Like it's you, you're probably good at what you do. Now we want you to do it 24 hours a day and mm. never leave, mm. right? It's, it's literally going to burn you to the ground and then they'll just replace you. So look at that from the flip side then. You know, you have these companies that we all know the companies that do <clears throat> that. And, you know, we've all... I venture to say most of the people that come on the show have talked to those companies. I know you have. I know I have. We get contacted by them all the time. They get engineers that go there. 
But what separates those companies from the the other companies that really draw the talent? Because they still get the draw because they have the big name. But what is it that gets someone like you to go to a smaller company that doesn't have that type of requirement? If, if I put my mid-tier developer hat on, uh, it, it's really autonomy. People want to be able to experiment. They want to be able to try stuff. If it fails, it fails. They'll do something else. If they want to change the way something, they want to be free to experiment with it. They want to be free to manage their own time. Lots of big companies don't give you that. Some do, but lots don't. They're very, they're very rigid. So that might attract me. But more importantly, what would attract me to a company is how does it play in the ecosystem? Is it involved? Is it even a member of the ecosystem? Forget the individual people. Mm -hmm. Is the company in an ecosystem? Are they a player? Yeah. Not just a sponsor, right? Like, are they actually involved? Because that means you can steer big things, right? Like, if you work at one of these companies, you can influence large things. And that's really a giving you a social media presence at this point, which actually fits right in our generation right now, right? Like, there's another vehicle to be heard. Okay, so that's a great point. That sounds like something that, you know, maybe when you were in your younger years or when you were earlier on in your career, when you were more hands-on and more on keyboard, you would have found appealing. Put your executive hat on. We have a lot of recruiters that are executive recruiters, you know, and they want to know what it takes to find and attract someone like yourself for these executive tech roles, these tech executive roles, the the CIO roles, the CTO roles. What is it that's gonna attract an executive like yourself to one of those type of roles? It's, it's close to autonomy, but different. It's freedom. You've hired me because I'm an expert. You, you think I know what I'm talking about. So why are you gonna decide if the idea I pitched you is good or not, right? Like the idea I pitched you is what I think we should do. That's why you hired me. Why are you gating it, right? Like you need, you need to give that person the freedom to experiment with that idea to the point that they can even build a team around it. it lots of these ideas, crazy though they might be, actually end up being um, really profitable. That's actually a variant on a Jeff Bezos quote. What's that? Uh, I actually, unfortunately, don't know the official quote, but um, what I believe he said was it, it turns out a lot of those crazy ideas work. There's this classic example. You know, if you read this book, What Would Google Do? And it's one of my favorite books. There's a part where Sheryl Sandberg, you know, fails at what she's doing. And, you know, she has to go tell her boss that the project she's working on failed and it failed um, almost immediately. And the response was... Thank you for failing so quickly. Now we know what doesn't work and you can go and apply that to what will work. And that's the gist of what they say in this book, what would Google do? So, I mean, it sounds like that's almost what, what you're saying here. It is. Another way to look at it is decision paralysis. Like, what if we get it wrong? Decision paralysis, right? What if you get it right, right? What happens if you get it right? Then you've got it right. This is great. This is good news. It sounds Everything like... you don't do because you're debating is something you had a chance that you might have gotten right. But I mean, it's supposedly the people you trust to tell you what the right things are. I mean, and this goes back to the whole thing about, you know, we joke about the six-stage interview process. Obviously, the reason why that happens is someone along the way has decision paralysis, and they can't decide on whether or not they want to make the selection, so they pass the buck to someone else. And that person does the same thing, and so on and so forth. But, I mean, it, it sounds like this is a common theme. <laughs> It is, and the reason people can't make decisions 
isn't necessarily a bad work environment. It's because they're overly distant from technology. They don't know what their teams are doing. They literally have no idea what their teams are doing or how long it should take or if it's innovative or not, or if it's been done before or what, what the solutions are that are out there. They just don't know. They're removed from it. I, I, going back to what you originally asked, look for people that are closer to the ecosystem so that when they see a good idea, one, you don't have to step them through it like they were five. They actually already know a little bit about the topic. Mm-hmm. You can have a detailed conversation about it. And then they'll understand how to expand on it versus, oh, yes, we should do it or not, right? Like they'll actually get it. Right. That makes a huge difference. Right. If you're going to grow something and your group doesn't understand it, especially your boss, like, why are they going to put resources behind it? Like, why would you? So if if you know you're walking into a situation where that's the case, why do it? So I look for places where I know that's not the case. Right. Like executives don't have a lot of time to be hands on, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't understand what what is happening in your space. With how quickly things evolve in technology, I think it's really important that we do have executives in technology like yourself that are close to the tech, that are involved, that are contributing to the community, that do sit on boards, that really do keep up with with everything because that's only going to make the people under them better. When you look at you know things particularly in AWS i mean that they're releasing services particularly in ai and machine learning development suites like faster than people can keep up with i mean certainly faster than i can i mean everything with the, they've done with sagemaker is certainly faster than you know people can keep up with everything from i mean people are still trying to keep up with what they released last year at reinvent so i mean you bring up a good point how important it is to have you know, executives that do understand technology. I mean, it's not, this isn't, you know, an operations position where you're just, you know, running and steering the ship. You're in a lot of ways guiding the overall solution for your company, whether it be a technical solution, whether it be an account solution for an entire cloud solution for a customer, whether that be a public or private sector customer, you know, you're building applications, you know, you're in, in many cases, a product owner. So, you know, when you're talking about large SaaS companies or cloud companies, it's, you almost have to be, you know, on that technical side as an executive nowadays. At least a little bit, right? Like we're not talking about day-to-day knowledge here, but you have to be at least a little bit. Imagine it from the other direction too, right? Like imagine, the interviewee asks you something you should know about your field, right? Like something that's super, super basic and you don't know it. You're not going to win a candidate over that way. I mean, and two, if, if you don't know about your field, why are you going to go into an interview and ask a technical question, right? Like, what's the point? I mean, look, I'm not expecting the CTO to tell me step definitions in a CI/CD pipeline, you know, but I do expect them to be able to, you know, say overall and explain what a CI/CD pipeline is, right? So, I mean, or maybe recount the time when they when they actually ran one, right? Like, sure, it'll be different, but like they've done something similar. Right? They should have an understanding. Right? Like, why would why would you as a leader ever ask someone to do something you're not sure if you could do it yourself? And right? you've never tried, and you've, you've never, never done tried. It. Like, you might be setting this person up for failure. You don't know. So make it real for the recruiters out there right now, because we have a lot of recruiters listening. Um, what would your advice be for them if they're trying to reach out to a tech exec like yourself and trying to attract them to their company? What would your advice be to you know to them as far as reaching out and contacting, and what would it take to get you to go to their company? First, it, 
the way you reach out would matter, right? Like, at least show that you're familiar with how open source works. Don't send this exceptionally formal letterhead out of the blue, right? Like, you might just get a short message on social media that says, hey, want to chat, which is, that's how relationships start, open source or not. Uh, and it's the, the way like LinkedIn works. It's the way GitHub works. It's the way Gitter works. These are all social media things where developers talk to each other. Executives talk to each other on the same mediums like this too. Show that you kind of know the lingo. Second, um, you have to show that the company is already doing some of the things the candidate is interested in. If it's open source, you have to say, hey, we, we're doing X, Y, and Z already. Um, showing that you have a future roadmap is not really a commitment to doing it. You have to actually show that you're doing some of it today so that you know you'd be a good fit, right? We can get companies to do a lot of things, but they might not want to do those things. It's much better to work at a company where the company wants to do the same thing you want to do. It's just much better synergy, right? Like executives, directors, leaders can get companies to a lot of destinations, even if the company doesn't want to go there because they know it's the right answer. But it's not a great situation to be in where that's the case. It's an uphill battle. Why fight that? There are plenty of places where you don't have to fight that. So you mentioned working at a place you're interested in. How do you balance that with some of your other commitments, like working at Lucky Dog Animal Rescue? I actually don't think it's, it's a how do I do it. I think it actually enforces it by itself. Just planning to have different times to do different things that are not work is very helpful in and of itself. You, you carve up your day and you dedicate various time to the things you want to do. So on weekends, I want to save animals. So I do. And with that, like basically been to most of the events that Lucky Dog has, um, COVID notwithstanding, for the last five years, which means I get to get out. I go see 100, 200 dogs a week. I, I see 100 people a week. These are all uh, interpersonal interactions that are going to help me be a good team player. And I get to save animals. Why wouldn't I do it, right? Like, it's not about how do I balance it. It, it balances itself because it, it gives you um, time to decompress. In 2018, there were three U.S. hurricanes. Uh, I actually forget the names of them. But uh, Lucky Dog was actually involved in all three responses, uh, including one of them was being, was Puerto Rico. There, there's actually a pretty cool article out there where we chartered an entire jet, like a 747, uh, with lots of help out, obviously, and flew it to Puerto Rico with over 14,000 pounds of dog food, people food, and water. Uh, and we actually flew back uh, 62 dogs. That's like, amazing. This was, this was before most flight service had been restored. Like, this was a, a major airline when a natural disaster happens and, and, and mobilize literally any way possible. Sometimes it's actually after the fact. It's not like we can say, hey, please go drive to the middle of the hurricane and uh, see if you see a dog on the side of the road and uh, take it to your house. If people want to get involved or they want to help Lucky Dog out, what does Lucky Dog need the most? And then also, what do they need most from volunteers? The number one thing they need most is fosters. It's a foster-based organization. They can, they can only have as many dogs as there are fosters. But... Uh, on the other hand, there's medical bills. We, we commit to dogs for life, regardless of what's wrong with them. When they become a lucky dog, we commit to them for life. Donations uh, go directly to the dog. Every cent goes directly to the dog or cat. Philip, thank you for joining us on our show. We appreciate your time. Best of luck in everything else you do. Thanks, Adrian. That's another episode of Recruiting is a Cluster with Adrian Russo. 
To learn more about Adrian and how Recruit Locator can support your business in this brave new world, visit RecruitLocator.com. Please subscribe and join us again next time as we untangle this beautiful mess that is recruitment. Cheers.